0: Lock and load. This is Steve Dace, the Steve Dace Show.
1: And greetings, happy Thursday. Good to be back home again, inside the friendly confines of our native Iowa studios. After spending a couple days though down in Dallas at the state-of-the-art Taj Mahal that the Blaze has down there, I am Steve Dace. Todders and Aaron McIntyre are here. Good to see you guys. Kept things in the same shape they were in when I left which is outside of this area that you're looking at. The rest of this place is a sty and it drives me freaking nuts because I just don't roll like that ever. But I'm afraid of coming in here and cleaning it up because you're going to tell me, Aaron, Hey, I have that there for a reason. And I don't know if you're just a cluttered genius and I don't want to get in the way of it. So I'm, I'm, I've allowed this to slide, but it's really driving me nuts. I
2: have helped build tear down and then rebuild this studio and you don't I don't know where want everything
1: is at, anyone right? touching any of these cables, ever. Somehow, there are more cables in this room than I saw the entire building where the Blaze is located. And they are in a movie a movie studio complex. I did not see more cables down in Dallas in that entire facility that's like an acre than the, than exists in this one room right now. Okay.
3: I don't know how you can see past the glorious pumpkin spice in this room right now. I mean, really, uh, you don't have anything to complain about.
1: That is true. Uh, I mean, I should be in a much better mood. I mean, Monique Battaglia has, one of our dear viewers here on Blaze TV, has just unloaded uh, on on the pumpkin stuff.
3: It's like a pumpkin spice cannon, like at the baseball games where they shoot t-shirts out. And I'm
1: here for it, man. I am not complaining whatsoever. By
3: the way, Monique, I like steak.
1: (laughs) Todd's fetish is not pumpkin spice. It's Omaha steaks. So Just saying. Just saying. You know, not saying. Just saying, right? All right, let's get to it. 888-900-3393 here on the program. That's how you can let us know what you think about what we think. That's the number. You can also email us, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at steve. Dace Show. You can also follow us over on Parlor at Steve Dace, who apparently has been telling me for a month I have 11,000 followers. I've had 11,000 followers on Parlor for like a month. So maybe I'm getting shadow banned there now, apparently. You did it. <laughs> I get shadow banned from the right wing sites. <laughs> Well, is it's CPAC running it now? <laughs> nice. Well played. Uh, also, uh, what else? Oh, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Today's a big day for Theology Thursday. We're going to revisit my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot, Written by Fiction, of course. Or is it? You'll find out here as we continue taking a look at it, revisiting it, in light of the era in which we now live, we're turning this book into a movie as we speak, written, air quotes, by a demon general from hell named Lord Nefarious, who puts in writing how he has taken down the United States of America, and he is so confident that his plan has been successful, that he's going to rub it right in your face. And we are going to revisit this book from four years ago, that Glenn Beck helped me sell a crap ton of copies of by uh, featuring it on his program prominently and helping me land a movie deal for it at the exact same time. I'm starting to think, I don't know. Let me see. The guy sold out my book. That's how I landed a movie deal and then gave me the show after his. I don't know. Do you think I might owe him something? Yeah. A little bit. Uh, no, no, probably not at all. Not, not a, it's 2020. No. In fact, he owes me. I'm the victim here. All right, if it wasn't for Beck's white privilege, we'd have we'd have gotten this show earlier. Sold more books, isn't that the MO of the era in which we live? You're telling me to cut it? No. That's, that you wasn't know what good? I tell you about the
3: coattails, shamelessly so.
1: And you, f- have a, you are fearful that I have endangered them in the last uh, minute and a half, perhaps. See,
3: I love your coattails, thus, but ergo,
1: <laughs> you must love his coattails. <laughs> yes, there you go. All right, so we're going to begin revisiting that book uh, for Theology Thursday this week, and I am looking forward to it and not at the exact same time. All right, So we'll start that with Theology Thursday next week, but that's a good segue to uh, reminding you that the sequel to A Nefarious Plot, A Nefarious Carol, where now this one is not about a demon general from hell, but from the man in charge of hell himself. This one is about the enemy, capital E. Uh, You don't want to miss this. It comes out on December the 15th, and you can pre-order your copy today over at Amazon.com. It's the novella sequel, A Nefarious Carol. All right. So with all of that in mind, also coming up at the bottom of the hour, David Harsanyi is going to join us from National Review to talk about James Comey's testimony yesterday before the U.S. Senate and some of the bombshells that were uh, that came out of that, but also reported from more docu dumps. We'll get into that and more with David Harsanyi. We'll play three non non-political questions. But before we get to all of that, here is Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What Happened While We Were Away, brought to you by the panic
2: porn machine spinning up. The gaslighting machine, too. We'll start in New York with Governor Andrew Cuomo, who now claims there was never an instance of nursing homes being forced to accept COVID-positive patients.
0: And we never needed nursing home beds because we always had hospital beds. So it just never happened in New York where we needed to say to a nursing home, we need you to take this person even though they're COVID positive. It never happened. We had extra beds. We had extra beds at Javits. We had extra beds at uh, emergency hospitals
4: that we put up all across the state.
2: So it just never happened. Cuomo also told a New York radio host recently, quote, I put my head on the pillow at night saying I saved lives. Senator Ted Cruz went on CNN for reasons only Allah knows to talk coronavirus with Chris Cuomo. What are do you doing? People are getting sick, Senator, and you can't well, test you them. You don't send them. And they in don't nursing wear masks
4: homes. and you tell you don't, them not. You to. don't send them into nursing homes.
2: Oh, so
0: so the nursing homes was the sum total of the entire problem in the country. That's what well, it, was. it, it, it led Seven to New million York cases. having
4: 33,000 deaths compared to Texas having 15,000 deaths. And Texas has 50% more population than New York does. So, Europe, so, Chris, you let mean, in let tens of you, thousands it, people, they went you? to the hubs. That's does why we got so sick Does you at all that New York and New Jersey had the highest death rates in the of country? Course. Does, that, does that make you pause and say, "God, all me, Ted. And and to watch but, 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 guys like you stand by Chris, and stroke your beard you like think, a wise man instead of telling Chris, the
2: president to get on it. CNN headline, there's no getting back to normal, experts say. The sooner we accept that, the better. In Pennsylvania, a hot mic caught an exchange between State Representative Wendy Ullman and Governor Tom Wolfe.
1: So, Wendy, I'm going to take, take my mask off on a
2: speech. I will as well. I'm, just, I'm waiting so that we can do a little political theater <laughs> For those of you who didn't hear, Representative Ullman insists Tom Wolf wear a face mask at the podium of a press conference for, quote, political theater. Dr. Anthony Fauci says Florida's total reopening announced late last week is, quote, very concerning. Fauci also recently slammed the concept of federalism, saying that states having their own policies to combat the virus can be detrimental. Dr. Scott Atlas of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, however, told The Washington Times he's not being deterred by the ongoing assault on his credibility, saying the media is, quote, unquote, instilling fear. Harvard University has produced a study on the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, stating that use of the drug as a prophylactic reduces adverse risk of COVID-19 disease by about 20%. Moving on, former FBI Director James Comey was grilled by the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday on his recollection of the handling of the Russia probe and to interference with the 2016 election.
4: Did Mr. Page deny knowing people that you accused him of having contact with? I don't remember. That's about all I recall. I don't remember the I don't remember learning anything additional about Steele's sources, not that I recall, no. I don't remember Bruce or ever think okay. me, I don't recall that. So do you recall? I do not. Do you recall? I do not. I don't remember any discussion. I don't remember using that word, but I don't remember using that word. I don't remember ever being informed. The FBI and the Department of Justice were politicized and weaponized. And in my opinion, there are only two possibilities that you were deliberately corrupt or woefully incompetent. And I don't believe you were incompetent. This has done severe damage to the professionals and the honorable men and women at the FBI because law enforcement should not be used as a political weapon and that is the legacy you have left.
2: Television ratings for the first presidential debate dropped from what they were for 2016's first debate. The debate averaged about 29 million viewers on broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, down 35% from 2016. And finally, campus reform is at it again.
5: I'm Edwardin Enret with Campus Reform. We're here today asking students if President Trump should move forward with the Supreme Court nomination just weeks before the election. But what will they think when they hear Ruth Bader Ginsburg's view of the situation in her own words? What do you guys think about that? Do you think it should be filled?
3: Absolutely not. So I think they should do after the election.
0: It was like one of her dying wishes that she wanted to
5: uh,
2: have the seat remain
5: vacant.
3: Absolutely not. No. I think that they should wait. And
5: so there's also the element of Ruth Bader Ginsburg Do you think the way she viewed the situation should be considered in how we move forward?
3: Um, I'd like it to be considered. Yeah, I agree. I
5: agree that respecting her view. Like we should honor her wishes. I I absolutely think that she uh, has some say.
0: Definitely. I think the woman had to make a last statement as she was dying.
5: I'm going to read you a quote of uh, a prominent individual. I'm not going to tell you who said it, but uh, who makes a counter argument to you guys. And I want to get your reaction. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being the president in his last year. And then when this person was asked, you know, if the Senate should move forward, this individual responded, that's their job. So this may surprise you, but that's actually her quote, the one I read you that, you know, the president should move forward in an election year. Thoughts on that? I mean, I think that she, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Does this surprise you at all? Yeah. I feel like she would feel differently if she knew like that she was going to pass away before
2: the election with everything going on now. Like she totally had the right to reverse her decision on that. And that's what happened while we were away.
1: Do you know where the um, um, legacy clause is in the Constitution? Um, Right next to the situational ethics clause. And right next to the kill your kid clause. It's all in there. Yeah, it's all in there. Um, So it's the Supreme Court of Lords. Uh, Is is, is that what it is? You're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron's Montage brought to you by Rough Greens. You know, people go running with their dogs, walking with their dogs, take their dogs out to go potty, all those good things, but you know what other good thing your dog needs? Nutrients. And chances are, they are probably not getting it from the store-bought food. It's been sterilized just the same as ours in order to survive on the shelves for a long period of time for mass consumption and production. That's the same reason we take so many supplements today and that's where Rough Greens at VitaSmart comes in. It is loaded with the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, antioxidants probiotics omega oils etc that your pet needs it's a powder supplement that you put in mix it in with your dog's food according to our dog cap it makes the food he eats already taste even better because he loves this stuff and before you know it you're going to see a difference in your dog in fact how quickly well, they want you to take the 14-day jumpstart challenge because if you don't see a difference in your dog in 14 days or less, they're going to be pretty surprised over at Rough Greens. That's why they offer you this deal. It's just 14.95 for the jumpstart bag. See if you don't see a difference in your dog in two weeks or less when you go to roughgreens.com slash blaze. That's R-U-F-F for roughgreens.com slash blaze. We're going to get into the television ratings for the debate and analyze what they may or may not mean. That's coming up today in The Overtime, blazetv.com slash dace. Again, blazetv.com slash dace. That's where you can go get a discounted subscription to Blaze TV if you're not one already, because The Overtime is just for our subscribers. And if you're already one, you can go to blazetv.com slash dace and watch it later today after we record it after the show. All right, so let's get to what is in The Overtime. Um, I, I can't even analyze the... The Chris Cuomo, I, I can't provide any analysis to that. Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew Cuomo. I, I can't. Um, that level of gaslighting is, and I'm the guy that wrote a nefarious plot. I mean, that 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 level of gaslighting is is just frankly beyond me. Um, it's beyond my capabilities. I'm not a trained psychiatrist. What I'm about to say is going to sound like a joke, and it's not. I'm dead serious. I am not qualified to, to analyze that level of sociopath. I mean, in politics, you run into sociopaths all the time on some level, you know, just people that uh, so believe in their own superiority or their own view of the world um, and their place in it that they can lie so effectively because they be- they, they believe their own BS, right? I think Mitt Romney is a bit of, I I said this years ago, I thought Mitt Romney was a bit of a sociopath. Um, I think Bill Clinton is clearly one. See, I don't think Barack Obama is one. I just think Barack Obama um, is a true crusader for his religion, which is neo-Marxism. You know, but you get Barack Obama away from the neo-Marxism. He's actually a fairly pleasant individual in a lot of other scenarios and situations. But this just happens to be his religion. I think on a human level, Bill Clinton is sociopathic. I think Mitt Romney is sociopathic. And you'll run into a lot of those kinds of people in politics. That's why they lie so effectively. They flip-flop so effectively, so brazenly, unashamedly, because they they don't have an embarrassing lack of self-awareness like a Hillary Clinton. If you want to know, that's the difference, why Bill Clinton was so much more electable than Hillary Clinton. He's a sociopath. She's not she tried to pull it off and she can't. And so it just comes off as a total lack of self-awareness. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You just come off. And you're like, woman, come on, man, don't pee on me and tell me it's raining. You know, Bill Clinton is peeing on you and telling you it's raining. And a lot of people are like, it's really charming. I don't care. That's, that's, just, that's the difference between the lack of self-awareness and a sociopath. What Andrew Cuomo is doing is beyond my capabilities, just as a guy that does politics for a living. This is, this is clinical medical level. Um, this is the kind of stuff you see in in despotic dictators in the world today and and throughout history. Um, I I can't even I I can't analyze it. Um, it it's the kind of gaslighting. What was the name? It was a very popular show, and Amy and I watched it and really liked it on Netflix about the FBI profilers. That was really popular in the last couple of years. I can't remember it, but about the dawn of FBI profilers, profiling serial killers. And in some respects, that's what Andrew Cuomo is. Mindhunter. Thank you. Mindhunter. Yeah, great show. Really well done. And in some some respects, that's what Andrew Cuomo is. I mean, the AP says it was at least 4,000 that he directly sent to their deaths. Directly. I think the number is probably a lot higher than that. And the way, and when they would go into these prison cells, you would, when they would encounter the serial killers, they'd get one or two responses. Either complete total justification for it. And they would say so in a way that wasn't sinister. But, hey, you know, I, dude, I had to take like a smoke break. I mean, I'm mean, going to, you know, I was hangry. I needed, I needed mean, some people need a Snickers. I mean, I got a slit a chick's throat. I mean, I, and it was just really calm and, 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 and. They made it sound noble even. It wasn't like Hannibal Lecter. The other was just complete total gaslighting that it just never happened. And no amount of evidence that you could confront them with, they would admit to it. That's what... I, I can't analyze that. That is beyond me. That, that's a different show. Somebody with a different level of expertise. But that's a level of sociopathic that I've just... is beyond what I've encountered in politics. I've, I've not seen... A shameless soulless really beyond shame soulless level no remorse none none I, I, I can't analyze that for you I'm sorry someone else will have to do it it, it won't be me I, I don't know what to say to that level of malevolence I can't and again I'm the guy that channeled a demon in a book that thousands of you bought and I can't I don't know what to say to that man I don't I don't know what to say so we're gonna move on Um. I want to talk. How about move out of New York? Let's that, finish with maybe, that. Maybe maybe that's the line. I, I I can't imagine why anybody. I know our friend Shannon lives there. I, I don't know why anybody would knowingly submit to being under. You that's not somebody that's that you're under that person's rule. And if you know it's Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, I draw the same analogy with De Blasio and with Cuomo de blasio cannot pull off what what cuomo is trying he attempts it but it just it's it's nauseating sanctimony you know you just know you just know this isn't true you know this isn't who this person is he's just chilling in cedar rapids you know what i'm saying like that infamous hillary video bill clinton would never put something out where he's just chilling in cedar rapids bill clinton said i didn't inhale and people are like is that a thing you know i mean you know what i'm saying that that's the difference between the sociopath and the person that's just like, when they try it, they're like, dude, have you have you tried self-awareness before? Have you looked in a mirror? Do you know who you are? Cuomo is beyond this. It's a, uh, leave, that's my best advice. Move away, get out of there, as soon as you can. Um, I'm just gonna let the Harvard study on hydroxychloroquine just, <laughs> I'm just gonna let that just stand for itself. I can't. I could analyze that, but it would really just dampen what it just says on its own. To even attempt to add anything to it, just the story itself says it all. And we just it, walk away now.
3: It's just as deranged as Cuomo. Have,
1: but the other just, way, yeah, yeah. But the other way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's say. You know what? I'll add one piece of analysis to it. The effort that our media and some in our own government have made to make this drug unavailable, governors that have like banned it in their states. Didn't Gretchen Whitmer try this, I believe, in Michigan until Henry Ford Hospital, which was the hardest hit hospital in Detroit, came out and said, hey, this was one of the best weapons that we had
3: if it was a terrible idea she tried it in Michigan.
1: Yeah. Um, let's just say that all hydroxychloroquine is is what Harvard says it is. Now, there's the it, is is Harvey Rich Harvard or Yale? I think he's a Yale epidemiologist, right? The one that was really promoting hydroxychloroquine earlier this year and got trashed. Okay. He's one of those two schools. I think it's Yale. Okay. But let's say that that's just the baseline because there's other studies out there that show that it again, it's not a cure, but that it's a, that's it's even a far more pro, effective prophylactic than what Harvard found. All right. Knowing how politicized Harvard is, my guess is they came up with the lowest significant number they could that wouldn't get them lit up by their own people in the, in, in within their own mob. You know what I'm saying? So if Harvard's telling you it's 20 percent, it's probably higher than that, frankly. But let's just go with their 20% number. And what do they mean by a prophylactic? A preventative. Okay? I mean, why where, Why do you wear a prophylactic? What, what, what's a prophylactic uh, with, with sexual activity? It's to prevent uh, a pregnancy, correct? In the camp of vitamin C, vitamin yes. D, yeah, stay that, healthy. So we're not talking about a cure. We're talking about a prophylactic. Meaning, if you start feeling cold symptoms coming out in the winter, you pound the zinc, you pound the vitamin C even more than you normally do, right? A prophylactic, okay? I'm urging people to be pounding vitamin C and D now as a prophylactic to get ready for the flu season and the new COVID season et cetera right. so let's just say it's 20% effective that's that's all that it is that's all that it is we've had over 200,000 deaths could 20% of them have been prevented let's say yeah now, let, let's say of that 20%, you know, it's not 100. No prophylactics, 100%, right? Right. So let's say that it's 75% within that 20%. You're now at what? 15% of 200,000, right? Somewhere around there. Yeah. That's how many deaths people in our government and in our media are personally responsible for. For the jihad they have waged against this drug this year. They're directly responsible for it. I mean, listen, if that's their I'm only asking them to live by their own standard. If Donald Trump is personally responsible for every COVID death, and they're personally responsible for everyone that uh, every one of those people that were denied an effective prophylactic against COVID nineteen. Right. Right. Those are those are those not the
2: rules. And and speaking about living up to their own standards, if I could put a finer point on this conversation as well, this Harvard study was a a meta analysis of randomized controlled trials of hydroxychloroquine. You remember when Harvey Risch, who you just mentioned from Yale, was Mm -hmm. lit up, uh, most notably by John Berman of CNN. What was John Berman's main contention? Where's the
1: randomized trial? Where's
2: the randomized trial? Where's the randomized trial? And and
1: Dr. Risch was like, I'm doing the treatments. Yes. I don't need a trial. I'm doing the actual treatments. That's not how medicine works.
2: So Harvard decided to actually look... And bada bing, bada boom, Harvard found actually there's three studies, there's three randomized controlled trials of of hydroxychloroquine. And so they performed a meta-analysis basically saying, we're going to take a look at what these, these studies found that we consider to be legit, and we're going to see the results of these. And we found 20%, 20% is not an insignificant number. You'd love it to be higher, but it's not insignificant. So there's your, there's your living up to to your own standards. There's your randomized control trial. Harvard found in a meta-analysis that they were actually legit and that uh, HCQ as a prophylactic actually, actually has some positive impact.
1: All right, quick question, and I only want to spend a couple of minutes on this because I know how much you hate election look-aheads to future cycles. I do. Okay. If Donald Trump loses on November the 3rd, though, my phone is going to begin ringing about 10 minutes after. Okay. Bob Vanderplatz's phone is already ringing. That's one of the reasons Mike Pence is here today. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we can, we'll never go back to an era. One of the things that I think that Trump has changed going forward is it will now be a baseline expectation that the Republican nominee um, can do some level of one-on-one um personality driven pugil political pugilism with the media democrats etc right yeah. our, our our base is never going back to some kind of technocrat like a romney or anybody like that okay yeah um on the Cruz campaign Frankly, that was his weakness. He was not comfortable doing that because Ted is an ideologue, which I am one too, but I also didn't grow up in a good home with a good dad and went to Harvard. I I grew up in a broken home, dysfunctional, and went to community college. So I had to fight my way out of that home. I had to fight my way to get to where I'm at now. So even though I'm an ideologue, I'm totally comfortable with it. Okay? Um, But he is not. Him engaging in a long form, hand-to-hand political combat last night with Chris Cuomo is not his normal M.O., but if he wants to be the next nominee, I think he's going to have to show that he can do that. So, I obviously have a bias here. I can't win either way. If I criticize him, I'm, I'm, I'm unloyal. If I praise him, well, it's my friend, so I'm biased. So I kind of just stay away from Ted Cruz analysis, okay? That's why I'm going to do it again and just ask you guys. You had no idea I was going to ask this question. No. So I wanted to hit you with it cold. Your thoughts?
3: I would love to have a president Ted Cruz. But that being said, and you know, I broke my own rule. Uh, I don't know, a week ago, I came up to you, broke my own rule. And and we talked about this a little bit off air. I think that there are already people names. We know I I'll let you bring them up if you want to just cause I, but there are names that are popular right now in the conservative movement that are already pretty natural at this or are just women that make it. It, if Ted Cruz wants in, he's going to have to get beyond that, along with being good at this. I mean, these things are about moments. And I think in many respects, people uh, people decided his moment passed before he even had his moment, much to your frustration. So it may happen. I'm not ruling anything out, but it's a big uphill f- uh climb for him to get in the ring again
2: okay what do you think it's same basic analysis and and same thing that i would say with amy coney barrett of aside from the fact that just just on the face of it she's got an inspiring family and that uh she's she seems to be very well qualified for the position to which she will be facing hearings here in the next couple of weeks uh, it seemed like a prerequisite, and it's just the—it's just—I don't like this. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it was a prerequisite that the next replacement had to be a woman. And I would rather—I would rather, in a perfect world, say that the next replacement for RBG, the next president, will be the most qualified. But the packaging, absolutely—and that's that's just politics in general at any point in human history, um, but or at least in our nation's history, the packaging absolutely matters— and quite frankly, uh, Ted Cruz's moment as the girl with the curl. Now, that could change, but the girl with the curl has, I think, passed at this point. Still great. Still great, Statesman, but I think that moment has passed.
1: Okay. i, I You guys had no idea what I was going to say. I didn't know what you were going to say. I will refrain comment. There'll be plenty of time to break this down later, but that's—I just that stood out to me because that's not typically the environment that he willfully walks into. So I will right, we'll come back. David Harsanye from National Review is gonna join us. Stay tuned. So what does COVID nineteen have to do with potentially losing your home? Well, unfortunately, it could have a lot to do with it because the FBI has reported that since we started these dumb lockdowns, cybercrime went up 75%. I mean, we did everything online, meetings, shopping, school, everything for months. So that's also, by the way, where the legal titles to many of our homes are kept as well. Cyber criminals know this, so they forge your signature on a quit claim deed and refile as the new owner of your home. And then before you know it, you're off the title. They destroy you by taking out loans against your home. They steal your cash, liquidate your asset. Then they stick you with the payments. Maybe you don't find out till a late notice shows up. Perhaps even... A foreclosure notice so what to do about this well home title lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title your most valuable asset so that you are protected in the instant they detect any tampering whatsoever they mobilize to shut it down but first things first go to home register your address to see if you're already a victim and don't know it and then while you're there use the promo code radio for 30 free days of protection that's the promo code radio for 30 free days of protection at at HomeTitleLock.com. That's home HomeTitleLock.com. Correction, David Harsanya from National Reviews asked you to join us an hour from now to talk about yesterday's Comey hearing. I was just looking at a poll that has Joe Biden at 54% of the popular vote, a 13-point win in the popular vote. I just went and looked it up. In the history of the Democratic Party, two candidates have received that level of support in the popular vote. FDR and LBJ in 1964, which was one of the biggest presidential blowouts of all time. Those are the only two Democrats since Andrew Jackson, who they have now disavowed. Those are the only two Democrats since Andrew Jackson to get that high in the popular vote. Come on, man. Come on. Complete total bs just total bs let's get to three non-political questions
2: yes taking a break from the demise and fall of western civilization because we are going to fall head over heels into that for theology thursday coming up with a rehash of a nefarious plot get ready for some gut punches over the next few weeks three non-political questions question number one what's the most misunderstood thing in sports and yes that question is intentionally incredibly
1: open-ended the most misunderstood thing in sports you want to take this one first
3: the need for instant replay.
1: Figured you were going to go there. Tell us again why you hate we haven't technology. Why are you even no. going to let me expand? Yeah, I, I, why I hate technology? Yeah, why do you hate technology? Why why not get it right? Is technology? I, I oh, can agree. it can gonna, be overdone, philosophy. But on but on,
3: is technology a good in and of itself?
1: Um, it de- it depends yes, on the wielder. It depends.
3: Yeah, it's it's not an inherent good. It is often, like many things, abused. And the the need within, it shows the idolatry of sports that we have to get this right. It actually, sports is supposed to teach you the opposite. It's supposed to teach you about life, that life is not right all the time. There are things that must be overcome. There are things that can't be overcome. You need uh, to, we have gotten to this uh, ghoulish Clinicism about we just need to know that every strike was exactly a strike it's insane quite frankly it's it's a total misplacement of our priorities
1: i agree with that which is why i think it can be overdone but i also think as a general rule if it's possible without being um overbearing that was to, to get a major component of a game correct then I don't know why we would not do that. But then, of course, we're going to do a debate. What is a major component of a game? Well, that's my From the beginning,
3: okay. when we introduced this, what you said was the reason behind it, and yeah. it sounds totally sane to me. Right. The beginning was more than a de- How long since we introduced that into football? Was it's it like the
1: late 80s, I want to say? How,
3: it's, has it caused a more harmonious universe? I I just say not even close. And I think there's a growing audience out there for people that said, let's just go back and get rid of it.
1: Aaron, reword the question for me exactly as you asked it, please. Or reset it for me exactly as you asked it. What is the most
2: misunderstood uh, misunderstood thing in sports? All
1: right. Then, let me answer it in a way as someone who has been a beat writer and covered sports teams um, inside on the collegiate level inside a locker room. I think what is the most misunderstood thing? It, it, well, I could come up with several, but I'll come up with just a couple of things that I can I, I've seen with my own eyes all right they know everything you write about them they know everything you say about them they they read and tune in as often as they can when things are going well or in or leading up to a season and then of course turn it off if they're mentally healthy anyway we'll turn it off when things are not uh, in order to drown out the noise but they're very aware of what you think what you say I don't believe any of them when they say they don't read that stuff or listen to that stuff. I don't believe any of it. Now they they, can't—they—they—they keep incredible schedules. They're not like consumed by it, but they are aware. Um, and bulletin board material does work. I've seen stuff posted on bill bulletin boards. It does work, but now when it gets brought up, it's usually brought up in the context of, um. So you're going to be, you're going to play even harder. It's not, that's not really, it's the, that comes from people who work in the sports media side of things, but have never really been high achieving athletes. When you get to the level of division one power five level college football, basketball player or field hockey or cross country, like your daughters are, when you get to that level, everybody's great. When you get to the professional level, everybody's really great and no one really is lazy no one really is some guy so when we talk about this guy outworks his teammates what we're saying is this guy outworks the people in the 99 percentile or is it the one percentile? percentiles work the other way it's not the it's, one the one okay this guy's outworking the people in the one percentile no you're right i'm sorry Was uh, it the i other apologize way? Okay. I, you, this guy's out right. we'll try for the third time this guy's outworking the people in the 99 percentile Think about that. So every little thing that can give you an edge, every little thing that gives you a motivation, that's why why Michael Jordan spent his career talking about being disrespected. It's hard to win over and over and over again, to stay that motivated over and over and over again. Because it doesn't take... When we talk about teams resting on their laurels, Michael Jordan just didn't... after winning an NBA championship Larry Bird didn't repeat the next year because he showed up as Fat Thor that's not what we're talking about resting on our laurels but what it means is that added extra .00009% we're down to the 7th decimal now That of, of, which separates these guys at this rare, rarefied air maybe that's the one time you're like you know what I won my championship last year. I got my contract. I'm taking the kids to Disney World this weekend. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's that stuff. And you did it just like one time, once. And the other guy's like, I want my championship. My contract's up next year. My kids will go to Disney World after I get that damn contract. You know what I'm saying? That stuff. It does work. I've seen it work. I've seen it motivate. I've seen it help decide the outcomes of games. And so I think that is often misunderstood. What do we mean by bulletin board material, motivational material, smack talk, things of that nature?
2: Well said. That was an interesting a- answer uh, as well. Thank you for that. Um, and I, I don't mean that pejoratively. That sounded really sarcastic. That, that was very interesting. I, I think for me, and I don't want to beat this dead horse because we've had this conversation a few times, but in and also of sports, the most misunderstood thing to me um, if you are inside the world of sports, meaning you are part of the organizations at any level, uh, there's this growing and it's pervasive attitude that the spectators are there for you. It is the opposite. And as a spectator, they're there for you and not the other way around as well. So if, if, if sport and sport, uh, the, the biggest thing is that sport is meant as an escape, that's that's supposed to be mm-hmm. that's supposed to be what it is all about. If it is no longer an escape for the spectator, you can walk away. If it's because of uh all the all the tertiary things surrounding the sport as we've talked about before, you have the right to walk away as well. If you think that that's going to be an impact uh, make a huge impact on these guys bottom dollars, you may be wrong. Jason Whitlock the other day was absolutely right when he said that, uh, that, that money is a driving motivator for most of these people. You probably don't have that big of an impact walking away when all of these corporate interests are, are lining the pockets of these guys. Anywho, that's a digression. But the biggest misunderstanding is that sports is supposed to be an escape. And of course, that can be abused as well if your regular life, if your work if your family seems like an escape from sports for you, you might be uh, an idolater of sports, as Todd has talked about before. But just the biggest misunderstanding is uh, sports, sports uh, importance in people's lives is just completely out of whack. Sometimes, sometimes one way or the other. Question two, if you could go back in time and witness any event before Christ, what event would you choose to watch?
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Before Christ, what event would I choose to watch? Um, The Trojan Horse. That's a great event. Yeah, that is a great event. Uh, I would go back to... Do I have the option of changing an outcome? Or we, sure, what that's going to make travel, your answer better. What time travel rules are we going by? If you do that, that starts, are we going by the Avengers? The butterfly effect. Yeah, the, it starts a new stream of time because you can't change things. But um, I was thinking both what I would like to insert myself into and then observationally. What I'd like to insert myself into uh, is um, Adam and Eve. Just go back to the beginning. Yeah. Say, dude. Dude. Trust me. Trust me this doesn't get to turn out well. <laughs> All right? So, but if it was just observational, um, it, I'd have a tough call between seeing the looks on the Israelites' faces at the parting of the Red Sea or seeing the look on Moses' face when he gets down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and sees um, what a, a significant portion of the people uh became under Aaron's watch without him watching them for just a minute it would be one of those two events probably but i mean i could think of i could think of a i mean the one you chose is a great one obviously um i i could come up with a lot of different ones
3: i'm not superstitious but when it comes to these kinds of
1: questions, you want to stay away from like the biblical moments, Oh man,
3: I feel like I am like if I choose that it's and funny I was you there, should say that I'm messing.
1: It's funny you should mention that because I don't I, it just got kind of too convoluted. So I gave up watching it. But one of the CW Arrowverse DC Comics shows is called uh, Legends of Tomorrow, I think is what it's called. And they're, they're part of the DC wing of the time traveling, you know, and they go back and reset things. And in one of the earliest episodes, it is asked, why don't we go back and witness like the birth of Christ? And they are told there are certain events and moments that are so sacred to universal outcomes we are not to go back and revisit and Interesting. to show up That's what and and, and to and to insert ourselves into and that was one of the ones that was mentioned and so I, you made i hadn't thought about that hmm. until you just said that and now you kind of made you, you kind of made me think yeah you might have a point where that is did i jesus juke you yet? might have jesus juke me but that might be an effective that might be an effective jesus juke then um i mean uh Look at all the things
3: our faith demands of us, paradoxically, the leaps, the just, I mean, bend the knee, and then you're watching it, and not, all the instincts, whatever, like, and in the moment, I just, it's too much.
1: It's too much. Yeah. That's a good point.
2: I think, I mean, there's like three. One would be creation. That'd be pretty interesting to watch. It would, I I think, blow our minds uh, just a little bit. Uh, the other one that I would like uh, I would like to see is is the actual flood, so that I could make a better movie about that. A couple thousand, or, uh, you know, a couple two, three, four, five thousand nice. years later. I like
3: how Aaron's blowing past our cautionary tale right yeah. now. Like I want to yeah. see it all. Uh, yes.
2: And then I want to see the beginning of the Israelites in uh, in the desert as well wandering around to see if it's anything close to where we're at right now. Uh, Question number three. What's the most beautiful thing, non-human thing, you've seen with your own eyes? I put the non-human thing in there so we couldn't do the, uh, my wife, uh, juke.
1: Um... Non-human thing. (sighs) Um... I have no idea how to answer this. You want to take this one first?
3: I've, um, you know, mountains, oceans, the one that sticks out for me. I've only been there once when i I hope to go back. It just, I had already been in the Rocky Mountains several times, but in Yosemite National Park, the going to the sun road, Hmm. I don't know if it was just my mood, the time of day, the way the sun was hitting it. It was like scenes that are painted into a movie. It was just simply phenomenal. And I've seen, and like I said, I've been all over the Rocky mountains. Um, so that's, that's one that comes to mind. The going to sun road in Yosemite national park.
1: All right. I, I would, um, okay. If we're going down that road, first time, first time I walked into Michigan stadium, that would be my call. First time. And I've been, I mean, I have went to Niagara Falls and stuff like that as a kid, but first time I walked into Michigan Stadium as a kid. Yeah. Or a close second would be the first time I walked into Old Tiger Stadium as a kid and all the history and that was in the mid eighties and those were some great teams. I mean, you know, Jack Morris, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, uh, Kirk Gibson, you know, and, um, but seeing that stadium when you didn't have all the games on TV every night for the first time in my mind's eye and being there and seeing it for the first time, it would be one of those two events for me.
2: It, it is impactful. I didn't go to Arrowhead stadium until I was like 20. And it, it does take your breath away for me. It's, it's the grand Canyon been there a couple of times. Yeah, I've never it been there. So I can see that takes the breath away.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll come back. Theology Thursday. We revisit a nefarious plot. You guys ready?
3: Yeah. Or no, I'm not sure.
1: Stay tuned. And greetings. We're back with hour two live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzen, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. Don't forget, you can let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D E A C E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Over on Parlor at SteveDace, YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. And if you're a podcast listener, thank you very much for giving us some time uh, in your busy day. No matter how, really no matter how or when you choose to watch or listen, we're appreciative of all of you. But if you are a podcast listener, if you could do a couple of things for us, we would appreciate it. Hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform if you haven't yet. And then leave us a five-star review if you haven't done that yet. Heck, if you have, just keep doing it. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but I'm... Willing to find out, uh, because the more of those we get, the more it helps the show to grow. There have been scores, multitudes, even of folks like you around the country that have done those two things for us already. We want to say thank you to each and every one. At the bottom of the hour, David Harsanyi from the uh, from National Review. I almost said from the Federalist, where he used to work. David Harsanyi from National Review is going to join us as we look back on yesterday's James Comey hearing, where apparently he was completely and totally unaware. Of the investigation that he himself was overseeing and running. A lot of that goes on in government, I've noticed over the course of my life. As one does. Yeah. Totally and completely unawares. Yes. Another day that ends in Y. Indeed. But we begin our new series here on Theology Thursday. We are going to revisit this book, A Nefarious Plot. And. I thought it'd be fun to do this for a couple of reasons. One, you know, when, you know, like when the new, a new Marvel movie comes out and it's a Thor sequel or whatever, I, we like to go back and like watch the last one just to kind of, you know, reset where things left off and where we were at. So the sequel book, A Nefarious Carol, comes out on December the 15th. And A Nefarious Carol is about, now that the enemy himself, the devil, is, con- is convinced that this plan was successful... He tries to seduce a young woman one evening into producing him an antichrist. But in order for the seduction, to be, the seduction ritual to be successful, she has to agree to do this of her own free will. He cannot lie to her. He cannot deceive her in the ways that we would normally define those terms, I guess is how I would put it, right? He can't do those things in the ways that we would normally define those terms and in the ways that he would normally do so with any of us. He has to earnestly woo her. He needs to turn her into a disciple. And over the course of this one night in her hotel room, the two of them go back and forth uh, with this wooing process, looking at her life. And the reason the book is called A Nefarious Carol is I pattern it after A Christmas Carol. The enemy takes her to her past, walks her through what's going on in her present, and then shows her the future. What it will look like if she says yes. And ultimately then the decision is up to her. And that is what A Nefarious Carol is about. And it's a novella sequel to the book we'll be talking about the next few weeks leading up to its release. A Nefarious Plot. Now, this book came out in 2016, and I will tell you, I, I will never write. I went through it again um, a few months ago on my way out to L.A. as we started the storyboarding process for the movie, and we're in the script writing and location scouting process for that film right now as we speak, and we're hoping that we can uh, film in the next few months and put it out sometime next year, but we'll have more details on that for you here in the, in the weeks and months to come, but... Um, I'll never write anything the rest of my life better than this. I, I just won't. Uh, reading through it again a few months ago on the plane on the way to L.A. to begin the movie-making process a few back in June, every time I read this book, there are parts of this book I really just, I'm like, I can't, I don't remember writing this. Like, where did some of this stuff come from? Okay? I mean, um, the preamble... Which we'll talk about here more in a moment. The 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 preface to the book, I joke about. It's the only thing I write in an active voice, meaning my own voice directly. Okay, I I joke about that. I, I patterned it after see See, this book is patterned after C.S. Lewis's uh, Screw Tape Letters, and in the preface is the only part of that book where Lewis uh, uh, speaks as an, in his own voice. The rest of it, he speaks as Screw Tape. Um. In this book, the preface is the only place that I speak in my own voice. And I joke around in that book, in the preface, that I have no intentions of telling you how I came into this manuscript, where it came from, but who knows, one day if we ever sell the movie rights to this, that will be the story that we will tell in order to adapt the film to the big screen. And I read that on the plane out to LA back in June, I'm like... (laughs) I didn't even even think about that because I'm not going to tell you anything more about the movie and the script but that is precisely how we're going to do the movie version of this book Uh, is is we're going to tell that story that's what we're going to do and I, I wrote that back in 2016 well 2015 when it was written but 2016 when it was published and when I put the book out um, I took it to CPAC to introduce it there, like I did uh, Rules for Patriots, the pre the preceding book. And R- Rules for Patriots got a great reception at CPAC. I think a lot of people were kind of like, "With this book, um, what is this? Are uh, is it about us? Is it for us? Is it?" And and to be Does fair, own to the libs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it it was an election year. And and this would not be your normal election year. It is for this year, though. <laughs> well, well, we're gonna find out in the next few weeks. This would, but this would not on on the surface. This would not be your normal election year fodder for a group like at CPAC. Right? To be sure. fair to them, it, it would not be. So then, and where the book the book did okay when I released it on my own, but it wasn't until a guy that I previously did not know. Called me up in September of 2016 by the name of Glenn Beck and said, Hey, we don't know each other. I'm sure I know of your work. And of course, I'm aware of his. Um, but he said, A mutual friend gave me your book and I just finished reading it. And I think it is C.S. Lewis good. And I've got to have you on my show to talk about it. And I went on a show the following Friday for an entire hour and we discussed the book. That or a week later, a week later on a Friday night, uh, Amy's at a women's retreat. I'm alone with the kids on a Friday night. And I put them to bed and um, I'm playing some Madden football on my PS4. And an email pops up on my phone. It says, "Hi, um, uh, my name's Carrie. I've worked with a, a film a production company, and we're interested in buying the movie rights to your book." I thought it was a troll. Uh, I mean, if there were people like me that were not supporting Trump in 2016 we were getting trolled with all kinds of things and threats that whole election, right? Yeah. And so I, I thought that this was a troll. I thought it was a scam, that this wasn't true. So I deleted the email and just went back and played Madden. About an hour later, a little voice inside my head says, you might want to double check that. So I go back, I read the email again. I'm like, all right, let me see if this guy is even legitimate. Search his name. Lo and behold, it's the it, it's one of the guys that he's done several films, one of which uh, is God's Not Dead. So I know that at least this person is legitimate. Doesn't mean it's who is legitimately emailing me, but this person exists. Because at first I deleted the email and just moved on. So I decide I'm going to go ahead and answer it. And I'm thinking, I'm not, this is not legit. I'm not going to hear back. Emails me back right away and says, yeah, we want to talk to you right away. Um, I can't do it this weekend. My son and I have a father-son event planned, but we'll call you on Monday, my partner and I. I'm still like, eh, okay, we'll see. Monday comes around, sure enough. Kerry calls me with his partner Chuck, and what had happened is one of their uh, their third partner, a guy named Chris, happened to be listening to Glenn Beck's show that day, and they'd kind of been looking for something that they could adapt into kind of. Uh, I mean, they didn't use this term. I'm I'm using it for my own description, but kind of a of if, if those of you that remember Frank Peretti. Remember that? You probably read some of those growing up. Yep. Those are the horror books your parents let you read, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was kind of the Christian Stephen King. I mean, Frank Peretti sold a crap ton of books, a ton of them, right? But he did gothic horror, but in a strictly spiritual warfare context, okay? One of his books got turned into a, a mainstream movie, actually, several years ago. And uh, I, I took it that they were kind of looking for a story that they could adapt Into a, a, you know, that kind of a film where it it could have a faith element to a faith, it it would have a faith basis to it, but that this would be a legitimate horror film. And and other than the subject matter, in every other way, shape, or form, it would look and sound and feel like a contemporary scary movie. That they were really interested in scaring the hell out of people or literally, okay? And he was listening to Glenn Show, got the book, read it in the weekend took it to the studio or took it to their offices on Monday and said, guys, I think I found what we're looking for. Gave it to them. They read it. And they're like, yeah, let's, we, we got to talk to this guy. And that's how this started. And then it came down to, um, they had two books. They had bought the movie rights to, um, to do next. One was this one. Uh, the other was Abby Johnson's expose on Planned Parenthood. And given the timeliness of that issue, they elected to do that one felt like they were being led to do that one first and did. And that became the movie unplanned. And then after, um, they took unplanned all over the world. Um, earlier this year, I got the call, Hey, we're going to green light this. Let's, let's, let's go, let's roll. And then it was delayed for a couple of months because California where they live out there in LA, Hollywood, all that was shut down for so long. But the first weekend that all opened up, I flew out there in June and we have been at work on the process of what this is going to look like and what it's going to be about ever since. And all of that came from a guy just happened to be listening to Glenn Beck's show. We ended up selling the book out. We've had to do like two or three different reprints of this book. Um... And the idea for the book itself originated, perhaps fittingly, in Washington, (laughs) D.C. I guess if you're going to talk about a demonic takeover of America, there's probably no better place to be inspired for such an enterprise than while you are in Washington, D.C., right? Yep. But absolutely, that's the truth. I was in Washington, D.C., uh, promoting rules for Patriots. I was staying at a hotel in Washington D.C. I was getting ready to go do Mark Levin show. What year is this? 2014. All right. So, uh, the spring of 2014, I was getting ready to go do Mark Levin show to promote rules for rules for Patriots, and I was in the shower in at a hotel in Washington on the Capitol Complex there, getting ready to go, and this these were the words that came to me in the shower. This book is dedicated to all the useful idiots out there. Especially those of you who had no idea that you were being used all this time. For you proved to be the most useful idiots of them all. Nefarious. That's all. This whole thing came from that mustard seed um, that came into my head in the shower in Washington D.C., Washington D.C., when I got done doing Levin's show that night, went to dinner. That's also, by the way, the first night I ever met Chip Roy, Jason Johnson, two of my best buds in politics. I met them that night for dinner at a pub in Washington D.C. to discuss the possibility of a young, fresh-faced senator from Texas running for president in 2016 and what the environment could be in the Iowa caucuses. I met them that that same night. After I did Levin Show, I get back to my hotel, and I just decide I'm going to sit down at uh, the desk here at the hotel. I'm going to toy with this idea for a bit, and the the thought occurred to me: What if, what if what Lewis imagined with with Screw Tape, which is really about, for the most part, how hell tempts us and comes at us and attacks us as individuals. Okay, But what if this were expounded upon? What if it was, instead of an individual, it was an entire culture? What if it was like a manifesto? Like OJ's. If I did it. Except, he actually did. And then I thought, what if a lot of the presuppositions that we have... About how hell operates are just dead wrong like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing us he doesn't exist see that doesn't that didn't make sense to me so you're gonna shake your fist at God right to his grill and then from there you're gonna be kind of like I like to stay in the shadows you know what I'm saying I mean it takes a certain chutzpah takes a certain panache panache you gotta have some brass ones to look God in the face and say I'm gonna pull a Fleetwood Mac here and go my own way on this one I think you're you're wrong there Pops and then you're gonna spend the next ten epochs playing it Koi eh I've never quite bought that one like I would imagine that this would be in your face More. remember those commercials Leon can't do everything those Budweiser commercials with Leon the football player Mm -hmm. who was always the teammates fault right and he was always in front of see that to me is how I would think hell would operate give me the pomp the circumstance I want recognition I don't want to be like I want to be the most high I I want the recognition that goes with that so this wouldn't be a theoretical plan it would be the actual one it wouldn't be if I did it it would be hell yeah I did it and here's how I here, here's how I did and I'm gonna put it right in your face and I'm gonna connect dots I'm gonna name names there was only one thing I think we I think Joel Osteen's name was taken out of the book for fear of a lawsuit by the publisher which I understand other than that every there's all sorts of names named and dots connected in the book but you said it now. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> right. um, and uh, and 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 the mo would be you're so far gone that when I present this to you, you won't believe it. You'll think it's a scam. It's a conspiracy theory. There's no way this is true. It's fantasy. It's fiction. Blah 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 blah. And that is how. See, it's not that the devil hasn't convinced us he has. He doesn't exist. It's that we have convinced us. It's that we have. We don't want to believe it. We have convinced ourselves. And because this is normal now to us. It's, it's, it's our new normal, if you will. And that will be how he'll know that his plan has been effective to take down America. And it's irrevocable. Because we don't want to revoke it. We're gonna go right along, we're gonna come right alongside with this. But then I also knew I needed to answer questions that that people would have. It, questions I have. I mean, if the devil knows scripture too and he knows the end of the book and he loses, then why does he fight on? Stuff like that, right? I felt like for this to be credible and not just strictly a polemic, I had to answer some of those contextual crush questions. And I then I but I wanted to do it in a way where I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I'm not writing an inspired word of God here. So I had to, I, I had to do it in a way where I was, if, if indeed I died while writing this book, would I be comfortable ex, explaining myself to my creator, the creative license I took in this situation? Meaning that it's, it's, it's my perspective, but it's not my thumb on the scale of, of explaining these questions at the exact same time, right? Mm-hmm. So he, I use nefarious to answer a lot of those questions. And then I started thinking, what if Nefarious actually taught history and theology? Could I get away with, because it's him teaching it, and from the other side of the street, could I get away with him saying things directly to an audience? That if it was written from directly, from affirmatively from a Franklin Graham type, most people would just be like, unless they already agreed with it, they would just tune it out and not read it, right? And so I, I put all of those things in my in, 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 together in my head, and I had no notes, no outline. And I sat down and began writing that night the introduction to the book. That is the introduction in this book. And even two years later, when it was published, about 95% of what's in that, uh, that first night I wrote at that hotel room is what the introduction is to this book. And we'll talk about that next week when we go over it. But oh, and one other thing I had to do is I had to come up with. This couldn't be my voice as nefarious. I had to create a separate character. So I based nefarious. I needed to find a likable sociopath. Somebody who could draw you in. And, And if you read the book, there's a rhythm to it. At first, you take Nefarious almost as an anti-hero. You find yourself kind of nodding along. You have some of the same laments he has. You know, my wife, the first time she read it, said, "But the first 50 pages of this book, I actually laughed out loud several times and enjoyed it quite a bit. And then it's the last 150 pages of the book that it just got darker darker and darker and darker and darker and darker. And that was exactly what I was going for. We got to woo you, suck you in. And then once you're hooked... Right, we show you a little bit more of the darkness and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then by the time you get to the end, it is pure, unadulterated nihilism at the end. But if you started out like that, you'd tune it out. You wouldn't be tempted by that. And so he starts as an anti-hero and he ends as, as an agent of not even chaos, total and complete deconstructive nihilism. And... I patterned him after, in order to have that be a separate character as I was writing him, I patterned him after Heath Ledger's Joker and Larry Hagman's J.R. Ewing on Dallas growing up. And so those are the two, that is the compilation of, of the personality that nefarious, that nefarious has. I mean, how many times have you watched Dallas back in the day? Did you think J.R. Ewing was going to be redeemed? And then ultimately, he never is. I believe the last episode of the show, um, he goes head-to-head with the devil. I think that played by a very famous Broadway actor. I can't remember his name. I think that's like the last episode of the show. Uh, The the original run of the show. I don't know what happened when they brought it back on TNT a few years ago before Hagman died. Um, And then with Heath Ledger's Joker, he's not immoral. He is amoral. He is against all standards. Because that's what I think hell is. I don't, I don't think hell is promoting immorality. I think they're promoting amorality. Because for us to define immorality means we have to define what first? Morality. Morality. We don't know what is immoral unless we know what is moral, right? And if we're discussing immorality, then what are we discussing at the exact same time? Morality. Can't discuss one without the, right, with the other, right? Okay. What's amorality? No standard. In those days, Israel did uh, was why everyone did had no king, so everyone did what was wise in their own eyes. they just nothing, complete nihilism, nothing, no restraints, nothing holding us back. And it took me a long time to write this book. Uh, it took me well over. It took me over a year to write this book, which is a long time for me to work on a project. I. I, you know, don't have a lot of things I'm really good at. Producing a mass amount of content in a short amount of time happens to be one of the rare ones. The reason why this book took me so long to write is I had to walk away from it several times, for like months on end, because it wasn't comfortable, or it was too comfortable slipping into these shoes. Okay. I,
3: I thought you gave up on it because yeah. this is this is my first year working for him. So we we're, we're we're casual friends before that. But our relationship was nothing like it is now. And so one of the first assignments I'm given is, is hearing right when he comes back, he's reading this to me and I flat out told him, Steve, you have, you know, I, no one has any doubts about your gifts to produce content quickly, quality content. But I said, I said, this is like nothing you've ever done because already. And who, who could blame him? The, the, you could, he was reading it to me and I could hear different voices, I could hear the voice that writes Mm -hmm. rules for patriots and there's so much data and in there that you would understand that it came across like that. But then the personage of the dark one and it's like that movie I was for the the wrestling the grizzly bear one that you hate and I liked and what was the what's the name of it I can't but the purpose of that movie is to make you feel something that's not you can't be just above it the revenant you're talking the revenant and you can't just be above it and I was above this and then I was in it and you keep bouncing out and I said if you're going to keep doing this the trick is like it's got to be consistent to prove its point to get you in your wife actually got it and so then after that you didn't talk to me about this months on end and Mm -hmm. i didn't ask you about it i I mean maybe this one was too big for steve who cares and then you came back to it and then it was like on because you obviously thought about that you know it's going to be and you talked about that you know man it's it's raw it's a tough hat to put on there so it, it, it was really interesting to see from my perspective how your confidence that is unabashed and everybody who uh, likes you and hates you understands that about you, how you, you you seriously did not take for granted the task at hand, which is why it turned out to be great. Because if you took it for granted, this would have just been mediocre at best.
1: Aaron?
2: Yeah, and, and from a reader's perspective as well, now that we've sat on this book for a few years since the last time we've we've talked about it, uh, in depth on the show, and just reading the columns, and reading truth bombs, and and reading things like that as well. This it, it is an incredibly good. The, the first, especially the first uh, introduction, couple of chapters. It's almost like it's almost a, a poem. It has a like a cadence as well, especially very early on. That kind of lures you in and hooks you in. And I would describe from the reader's perspective and this is just my own opinion from the reader's perspective in this in this book it is the ultimate good cop bad cop routine the good cop where you know what we're all you know what there's there's you know the the cop that's that's sitting across from me trying to trying to to coax me into believing or saying or doing something you know what there's not so much of a difference between him and me and then you get the bad cop routine Uh, At the end, you know, at the beginning, the the luring in that you just talked about as well. I laughed out loud just reading it recently at the Stephen King joke at the beginning of the Mm -hmm, book. mm -hmm. That's hilarious. And there's things like that as well. You know what? Uh, You kind of lures lures you in, and then the bad cop. And you don't realize, however, until too late. That the cop, instead of being an agent of the law, is actually an agent of chaos in this book as well. And you uh, are—you have—you've fallen—you've fallen fallen for hook, line, and sinker, and it is before too long, you're too far into it, and you just get gut punched after gut punched after gut punched, and it is—you know—it is an edifying read, uh, but it is a difficult read as well.
1: You know, I've been blessed to get some really cool book endorsements. Uh, over the years in my career, this is one of my favorite ones, though. And this was an endorsement that Kurt Cameron gave me for this book. And he said, exhilarating, frightening, and true. If George Washington and Jesus co-wrote a new edition of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it would probably read a lot like a nefarious plot. Now, that is a really cool endorsement Um, and the thing about this book is in the last few months I've had several of you send me emails we even talked about one recently on the show but several of you have sent me emails of excerpts of this book that almost just predicted the things we have seen this year and I don't I don't know whether to be proud or frightened by that. But that's one of the other reasons that we're going to go through this book for the next several Theology Thursdays, chapter by chapter. How much of it is parody? How much of it is prophecy? We'll find out as we study a Nefarious Plot here on Theology Thursday. When we come back, David Harsanyi from the National Review. I almost did it again from National Review is going to join us. Stay tuned. Well, if you watched earlier uh, when Aaron gave the rundown of what happened while we were away, had a fascinating, if not infuriating, montage from former FBI director James Comey, who apparently was unaware of the vast majority of details of his own investigation that and other things came out yesterday we'll talk about them with our good friend david harsanyi over at national review david good to have you back with us brother how are you
0: good Always a pleasure thank you
1: david let me congratulate you first and foremost uh, i'm sure that you were proud yesterday to learn and you know a hell of a lot more about James Comey's investigation, that it turns out uh, that he claimed that he knew yesterday. What were your thoughts watching that uh, uh, that whatever that act was from the former FBI director?
0: Uh, obviously, the first. Obviously, uh, you know, there's a, a tremendous amount of dishonesty going on. Obviously, I I I think many things of James Comey, but I don't think he's stupid, and uh, we know. Let's put it this way. I mean, if that kind of thing was going on right under his nose, that kind of uh, duplicity, that kind of corruption, and he didn't know about it, then he was a terrible FBI director. And if he knew about it, he was a corrupt FBI director, and neither option is a good one for him.
1: Well, that's what Senator Cruz said to him yesterday, right? That either you are incompetent or corrupt. And I don't think incompetency is the likely answer here. So here's... David, why I don't spend on our show a good deal of my own time analyzing these stories because I'm I don't ever feel like anything's going to happen that these people just can do whatever they want they can tell any lie just and all they get is CNN contributorships and book deals out of it. There's no real accountability, and I get you know I get frustrated by it, and so. I don't see a point in pursuing these things when I don't think anything... What what will happen to James Comey?
0: Nothing. You're right. It's incredibly frustrating. This is one of the biggest scandals, political scandals in American history. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here. I'm um, I'm not a hysteric on these things. I'm not... You know i'm not exaggerating here it's not hyperbole i mean you have the fbi trying to and working first you have you have an administration trying to undermine the incoming president you have an executive branch filled with people who are delegitimizing the presidency i mean i don't think this ever happened in this way so you're right though i have no you know i don't think anything's gonna be no one's gonna be arrested no one's going to you know face charges. In fact, it's so complicated sometimes. I think that people have tuned out um, and don't really understand what happened. And you, obviously, you have a media that's abdica- abdicated its responsibility to report these facts. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a disaster because you have tons of people who now do not trust institutions of American life that are incredibly important.
1: Is it just me? And if, believe me, if you have a different perspective, I want my audience to hear it. Because I happen to think Bill Barr is like the most overrated political figure in America today. Gives gives a great speech. Uh, does a great job, quote, owning the libs in, in congressional testimonies. But he is, as Attorney General, I mean, right there with Secretary of State, Chief of Staff, those are some of the most powerful positions in all the executive branch, other than the presidency itself. You know, a lot of our, our, our peers and a lot of our readers in this sphere are like, well, why won't anybody do anything about this? I'm like, wow, wow. I mean, if only there was like a badass Republican, tough talking attorney general, maybe. Oh, wait, we have one. Am I wrong? Am am I asking too much? Is is this not his job? If I'm wrong, tell me. Because I kind of think it is.
0: Well, I've been thinking about that myself lately. And just in general, I think you have people in government who have been in government for a long time I generally I like Barr, but I think that he is slightly overrated, especially in this regard. I mean, we should wait to see what happens, but so far it seems that way to me. You have people who are in, in these institutions who they're you know they, they they want to protect the institutions themselves. They want to protect the the FBI rather than let us know you know about all the corruption that's gone on in there. I mean, if 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 Joe Biden wins the election this whole investigation is is kaput, right? We're not gonna know anything. So I think there should be more urgency in trying to let us and more transparency in trying to let us know what happened and allowing us to know what happened. Um, but I, I, I've been sort of confused by Barr, but even to be honest with you with Donald Trump I well, was gonna again, ask you
1: about him next. Yeah.
0: And he knew a lot a lot of this stuff was probably coming. And I don't he could with he could just sign one, a, a, a paper and make it make it happen. It doesn't have to be bar
1: like the so FISA warrants. I'm glad you brought that up pardon me, David. But I yeah. remember when my colleague here at Blaze TV, Mark Levin, went on, I think it was Fox News, Sunday or Fox and Friends, like the day this story broke and said, If, you know, using his own legal expertise, you connect the dots. This has to mean the Obama administration spied on the Trump campaign. It has to mean that because that's how you get FISA warrants approved. They couldn't do it without the White House. Okay. And he was, of course, vilified and attacked. And now, of course, the news has come out and everything he predicted, you know, two years ago was actually true. I said at the time, well, then why doesn't President Trump just declassify all the FISA warrants then? Because we'll find out what if they did. They have real evidence Was it flimsy evidence? What did they tell a FISA court judge that was the rationale for why they felt like they had to surveil the Trump campaign? It it just seems to me like there's a lot of us in conservative media and of a lot of our consumers that have worked harder to get to the truth of what happened to Donald Trump's campaign than Donald Trump has. Am I wrong?
0: (laughs) It certainly seems that way. I mean, I remember early on and I, you know, at first you're like, well, you know, you have the FBI saying this, maybe there's something there. We should let, let it, let the investigation work itself out, et cetera. And then, and then more and more, you're like, no, the worst, you know, your worst fears are coming true. It all seems true. And then, you know, you're like, why isn't Trump just releasing this information so we can get the whole story? I mean, you had Devin Nunes, he was the first person to really blow the whistle on this. Um, and he was treated like some kind of crazed conspiracy theorist. But, um, you know, again, I think that people maybe are protecting institutions. I, I don't know why. they're I don't. I can't. I don't know why Donald Trump does the things he does sometimes. So, um, th- this is part of that. And uh, you know, it's 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 a great shame because uh, at, at this point, I think people don't care as much as they should. I mean, you had the IG report come out, and it showed that nearly every FISA warrant was basically illegal mm-hmm. to spy on the other campaigns, spy on the, the future president of the United States. And how many people cared? How many? You know, I mean, I know conservatives care, but I I don't know that that, you know, any kind of bombshell is really going to make the kind of news that we want it to make. And it's very frustrating.
1: Your former colleague at The Federalist, Sean Davis, was on Fox News last night saying, hey, Trump's own appointee running the CIA is who's standing in the way of getting more revelations out about this, according to the sources that he has heard. How is that? How how is that permitted to go on? I think that's what everybody in my audience wants to know. How is that permitted to go on?
0: Well, I'll tell you one way it goes on is that you have a bunch of uh, people who think that the Justice Department or the CIA is its own uh, branch of government and doesn't have to answer to the president. Now, even if you don't like what Trump is doing, that is not the case. And part of it is Trump's fault because you keep hiring people that you can't trust and people that aren't going to run government in the way you should think it should be run. You are the legitimate president of the United States. You have a a duty and and, and uh, you can name people who you trust. He's constantly firing everyone and no one's listening to him. So it's partly his fault and it's partly the, the fault of you have these lifetime bureaucrats who are in Washington and they think that they don't have to answer to anyone or they only have to answer to the people that they like. And that's really that the root of all of this, right? You had a bunch of people who didn't think Donald Trump should be president and they decided that they were going to delegitimize him and create a, a, a fake scandal that would ruin his presidency and hopefully get him impeached it didn't exactly work out but they did handcuff him in many ways i mean the trump trump when we think about the first term you have to say 2 to 3 years was spent dealing with this mostly this nonsense hmm. and that's uh, so their plan worked in many ways and no one has paid a price you're right they get a million dollar book deals or they go work at cnn no one has paid a price for it
1: so then final question on this topic david why wouldn't we just expect to get more of this i mean i can i can make up whole cloth that Brett Kavanaugh was part of a marauding uh, gang of rapists terrorizing Georgetown 35, you know, township 35 years ago. Uh, I don't like the president's foreign policy so we can impeach him over a 27 minute Ukrainian phone call. Almost nobody that actually testified at the impeachment was on or heard Um, the, the Russian collusion narrative. I mean, why wouldn't we just, if, if everybody, if all anybody gets out of it is the worst case scenario is it doesn't work but you can personally enrich yourself and or escape any individual accountability, then why haven't the rules of engagement then changed going forward? Why haven't we just incentivized that this is just, we should expect this le- beyond, we're not talking political chicanery here, just banana republic stuff. We that's Those are the new rules of engagement now going forward.
0: I wish I could answer these questions. I don't know. I mean, imagine, <laughs> imagine if... Trump decided because you have a bunch of people in the Obama administration leftovers who are, are have this idea that you know they want to ally themselves with Iran in some way and you could just start spying at them uh, you know spying on them you have as much I think you have as much as evidence now that they've been involved in those discussions as, as there was of any kind of Russia collusion which isn't really even a thing. Um, and you can start spying on people who will later be in the Biden administration. I mean, the difference is you would never get away with that. They would shut the country down. The media would simply not allow us to move forward one inch if that happened. It would be the biggest story of all time. And even now, even if you did the same things that they did, it would be the biggest story of all time. And um, it, it's frustrating. And that's a whole different topic. I mean, I think that, you know, I've been saying this for a while, but I think conservative uh, People with deep pockets need to start building up a media infrastructure for the right because the left has abandoned. It's not bias anymore. It's activism, and mm-hmm. it's you know it, you need not not just people who comment on things or you know you need deep pocketed people to build media organizations that can investigate and keep people accountable because what's going on now it just cannot work this way you can't have two sets of rules all the time for both parties
1: all right let's switch gears we got about four minutes left let's talk about tuesday night's debate what were your overall thoughts about the race coming in the debate itself and then the race coming out
0: um You know, it's funny. I thought Trump, when I watched it, I just thought he was overly aggressive and it was annoying me uh, because most of the time I think Biden would have hurt himself simply by speaking and Trump would step all over his words. On the other hand, I felt like the entire line of questioning where many of the lines of questioning were completely stacked against the president in a way that it was uh, unfair or I would say not equally distributed. So calling uh, critical race theory, you know, Uh, What do you call it? Uh, Sensitivity training, things like that. You're begging the question, you're loading the question, you are actually debating the president. I like a much more free-flowing debate uh, where you let people just talk about the things they want to. And anytime they got into anything substantive, Chris Wallace is like, we got to shut it down now. It's two minutes, you know? No one speaks in two-minute increments like that. But anyway... um, but when I read the transcript and my colleague of mine, I pointed this out, you know, Trump comes off a lot better. So I don't think it was this a disaster that the media made it out to be, um, but I think he can do better and he probably will next time. I don't think many minds are changed either way, frankly.
1: Hmm. What advice would you give for the president next time if he asked you?
0: Just pull. I, this is my advice for his whole entire presidency pull it back 30%. You know, whatever you're doing, do 30% less of that, and you will be much more popular. Um, but uh, I don't know if he can do it.
1: <laughs> um, I don't know about. What do you think of Chris Christie as a debate coach? I seem to recall the last time he was involved in a presidential debate, he kamikaze himself to take out Marco Rubio, but then destroyed his own candidacy at the exact same time. I'm not sure. That's the most um, um, uh, f- uh, thorough and uh, foresightful uh, debate prep you could uh, you could probably line up, but maybe that's just me.
0: They need the uh, they need the Clint Eastwood chair guy to sit there for Biden. I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Hey, thanks for joining us, Dave. Good to see you. Take care. It's all, thank you. You bet, gentlemen. Your thoughts on that conversation with David Harsanyi over at National Review?
3: Well, I you know we're all in the same. Um, sharing ball group now after watching that, you know, really. I mean, you just see the same thing. Like what he can't help himself. It's a great frustration of those of us who have are trying to
1: be on board. Can I, can I throw something your way that somebody sent me an email this morning? I did think was an interesting point. Yeah. Wanting to take issue with to varying degrees, our analysis yesterday Mm -hmm. that go back and look at the amount of times that Biden interrupted Paul Ryan Eight years ago in the VP debate, how belligerent he was with him. Do you think Trump's thought that Biden would try that with him? And that's why his tactic was to go at him right away, preemptively, to avoid Biden looking stronger than him by doing to him what he did to Paul Ryan. That's a valid point. I hadn't thought about that. it's It's a valid point if
3: Joe Biden of, well, eight years ago, whenever, is that guy. He's not that guy. I mean, my analysis about what I would do, be the happy warrior, has everything to know with it, knowing exactly who Joe Biden is right now. And I mean, he if you were debating Biden
1: that. in 2012, by all means, if step on his foot before he, feet before he steps oh, on yours. But you're now dealing with a feeble Yes, uh, Joe feeble Biden was
3: a real force yeah. of nature back then. And we talk, I remember you saying as much about, can you imagine these two odds? Well, that's when he, that was then. Mm-hmm. It's not now.
2: Yeah, I, I actually, because I hate myself, apparently, I actually went back and watched the first 20 minutes of that debate the other wow, night. Wow,
1: you're a better man than and,
2: me, um, or worse. I, and I remember when I was watching it live, it was not It was not until about an hour in or so where I was just like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I thought it was terrible before, but I'd, I'd hit a breaking point about an hour in. And the first 20 minutes of that debate are actually, I mean, I thought Trump actually dominated First 15-20 minutes, Trump actually dominated. And I would just reiterate what I said yesterday. Tell me, and I would state it like this, tell me what person, what person, when you're facing the perpetually loaded and begged questions that you were from Chris Wallace... And you're facing a lot of lies about your record or what you perceive to be lies about your record from the actual person you're supposed to be debating and you're debating the moderator along with those loaded questions. Tell me what person can navigate that gracefully. Now, it's possible but there are there are a very few people who can actually do that. And I just think your expectations, you should expect more from your leaders. Don't don't take that more. Don't don't take it. Don't take this to mean anything other than than this, though. At this point, as you said yesterday, Steve, Donald Trump's a finished product. And so when you're when you're faced with that, I don't think anybody could handle it. Uh, super super duper well unless they just got unless they just allow themselves to get rolled so uh, as far as donald trump's debate yeah it was it was grating i'm not sure i'm not sure what his other path could have been yes we would like to have more seasoned debaters yes there there is and are and will be better answers that donald trump can give in the future but it's donald trump guys
1: i think we all agree if there's anything this country needs it's more master debaters that's, that's good it. That's going to do it for today's show. I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. It's your show. It is my show. For now. Probably not anymore. Uh, Back at it again tomorrow, noon to 2 Eastern, right after Glenn Beck. Until then, John 317.
0: This is Steve Dace.
5: On the Blaze Radio Network.